Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Guards from Louisiana's adult prisons have been called into two state-run youth jails, the Swanson Center for Youth in Monroe and Bridge City Center for Youth outside of New Orleans. Last Thursday, 20 youth detainees at Bridge City took over parts of the building, while five youths escaped through a hole cut in a bathroom ceiling, one of many escapes, leading Jefferson Parish Sheriff's deputies and SWAT members to attempt to restore order. Internal memos show that guards are now allowed to carry tasers and pepper spray and employ use of force techniques. The temporary approval of such tactics, which are generally off limits in youth facilities, is a sign of increasingly desperate conditions inside Louisiana's aging and understaffed juvenile jails. The decision to allow use of force inside the youth jails alarms some attorneys and advocates. Aaron Clark Rizzio, executive director of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights, stated, These policies are a threat to increase use of force on children in facilities that are supposed to be helping children and rehabilitating children. If there's too much fear and violence within these facilities, they're not going to help that by introducing more fear and more violence. Governor John Bell Edwards, who ordered the Department of Corrections and Louisiana State Police to temporarily send guards to Bridge City and Swanson, said that reinforcements, including state police troopers and probation and parole officers, began securing the two facilities last Friday. Edwards stated, This immediate solution will be in place for as long as necessary as we work to put a long-term staffing plan in place to ensure the safety of the youth who have been entrusted to our care as well as the staff. We are in conversations about the longer-term solution and nothing is left off the table. On the levee in view of Bridge City last week, supporters rallied in solidarity, chanting, Bridge City youth have the right to rebel. State troopers go to hell. Washington, D.C. contains more law enforcement officers per capita than any other major American city. Agencies including the FBI, DHS, and ICE coordinate through a complex network of partnerships, initiatives, and technology to surveil the district. Last year, a transparency collective, the Distributed Denial of Secrets, published 250 gigabytes of department emails and attachments, and this week, a group of immigrant-led civil rights organizations, the ICE Out of DC Coalition, published a report mapping out many of the region's law enforcement surveillance agencies and technologies. Taken together, the report and the leaked documents reveal the corrupt and invasive eye of DC police. The Joint Operations Command Center, JOCC, is a surveillance network that Washington, D.C. police use to watch everyone, residents, political protesters, and suspected gang members. Officers and analysts keep eyes on news, activist social media accounts, and closed-circuit television feeds, funneling intelligence to plainclothes officers on the ground. Designed as an emergency infrastructure upgrade for the War on Terror, the network was launched on 9-11 and has only grown since then. The documents and reports show that MPD's database of supposed gang members is riddled with errors and used to justify aggressive policing of black communities. 
that a robbery unit likely engaged in jump-out intimidation tactics and targeted schools and youth, and that a powerful tribunal overrides the department's attempts to fire bad cops. Dinesh McCoy, an attorney and the report's co-author, stated that many of these systems are constantly collecting information about DC residents and can provide precise details on their daily lives in real time. There's a real potential for this kind of surveillance to cause a chilling effect in a climate of fear around the right to protest in the city, especially for black and brown people that are targeted most often by police. Carlos Andino, a fellow at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs explained, they're making tremendous leaps in order to justify the surveillance of black and brown residents. The more they get away from 9-11, the more they need to justify their constant surveillance. We're sticking close to home this week. We shared part of a panel on the effects of incarceration on families. Max E. Smith, Becky Harris, Stacy Flynn, and Ashley C. Ford speak on their experiences of having incarcerated loved ones or how their time inside affected their family members. All Indiana residents, they tell us about the stigmas people face when they have family inside, as well as the financial burden placed on families. As one panelist mentions, sometimes the pain families endure is seen as an extension of the punishment for the incarcerated person, a cruel way to justify the burden placed on the shoulders of family members. I think what Ashley said about the effects of the children, but the also <clears throat> the people that didn't do the crime, is that when I would go to the jail, I've been a teacher for 30 years, when I would go to the jail, I would see a lot of my families there, but then the treatment that I would get from the, the people that I voted into office and was paying their jobs was horrendous. And um, I got treated like I was a scumbag of the earth, you know, and I was just trying to come and see my loved one and, and have some contact and stay in contact. And that was, it's really hard because you do, you are stigmatized and it's, it just affects your whole, whole life and then trying to take kids there to see, you know to stay in contact with their loved one is just it's really hard one of the things that i noticed is that um there are no mental health services for families of incarcerated people there are none um i've looked <laughs> for years and years and years like it shocked me that my mom had a, as a 22 year old single mother at this point of one and pregnant with another, that nobody ever was like, would you like to see a counselor? Would you like to see a therapist? Would you like, like at any point? Um, I see a lot of people struggling with the trauma of having an incarcerated loved one and feeling like they're not allowed to seek help for that that they're not allowed because of where the trauma comes from, or that they're not allowed to love the person who did the bad thing. As if love is a thing that like, we choose, you know, love is an action, but when it comes to our loved ones, our family, our parents, it, the love you have for that person, even if you want them to be held accountable, doesn't go away because they do something bad or because they do something wrong or because they commit a crime. And there should be a way for people to process that truth, to embrace that complex set of emotion when something like this is going on in your community. 
and there's nothing. There's nothing. I've never even heard of somebody specializing in working with family members of the incarcerated, which is wild to me because when you think about the numbers that we have of people who are incarcerated in America, when we think about these mass incarceration numbers, why do we think that these people don't belong to anybody? Why do we think they don't have people who are reeling in the wake of this? Um, it's a very, very big missed opportunity to, um, to minimize the damage done by crime and incarceration. I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to write this because I'm sure it was, you know, personally probably helped you, but I, it's obvious what your purpose is in it. And it is an overwhelming, um, I heard the term overdetermined phenomena. You know, there is no, there is no solution to this brought to the problem of incarceration. Um, incarceration in itself is a problem. Um, the reasons people get incarcerated are many, and um, there, is no, there isn't a solution. Um, the thing that you did say, the word community, and that's the thing that I learned while I was incarcerated, was that there is a community that doesn't judge me. Um, that was a new, that was like a, um, an epiphany uh, because I, I was so, um, you know, careful about my, I lied to everyone, you know, because I didn't want people to know I was a drug addict and people, you know, drug addicts aren't cool. Um, and, it, you know, it's hard to, um, it's hard to um, convey that to somebody who doesn't feel like they're a legit member of their community. And that's the, the biggest effect of um, becoming incarcerated. It, that is the purpose of incarceration, is to separate you from your community. And it's a horrible thing to do to someone, um, no matter what um, choice they've made that, to get them incarcerated. So um, that, to me, to me um, finding, you know, I'm, I'm a mystic, so I, um, I, I find meaning in my experience through um, many things that uh, people maybe would even call crazy. But uh, I, uh, I, I feel like my path uh, has been what it is for a reason, and um, I've seen that play out in my experience, and it makes sense to me, and it gives me meaning. Um, lack of sense of community, for sure is a tether to each one of these different problems that, you know, the, the problems that come from being incarcerated, they, they all are tied back to the lack of sense of community. And if we, um, if we could somehow um, build, build community, uh, that's, that's where I've been, that's where I spend a lot of my time. Um, I employ former incarcerated people and, and people who've struggled with addiction. And uh, I've uh, kept, you know, the watch of my own judgmental, um, natural human. Uh, we, we are nasty, 
humans are nasty. We, we, yeah, we, we judge each other, we um, measure ourselves. And this system sure makes it easier to do that. Any other last comments, Stacey? Sure. Um, I know after hearing some more about Ashley's perspective, as well as Beth's, um, that brings to mind or reminds me of the guilt and shame I still hold on to for the harm I caused to my family. And sometimes I feel like the only way I can give any retribution to others is at my place of work. It is a reentry organization and essentially a resource hub. And I have had experiences with family members who reach out to us or stop by in person looking for that support, looking for guidance. What can I do to help my loved one who is incarcerated? Or they're getting ready to be released on this date. Where can they stay? Where can they work? You know, what can I do to be supportive with that? And my heart just goes out to them because, you know, they're, they have this unconditional love still for this person, which I absolutely admire. And, um, you know, knowing from my experience, the damage I've caused in my life, you know, wants me to just be that much more helpful to others who are reaching out to us because there aren't any places to give them that support. You know, and I end up sometimes being a counselor and uh, I have not the schooling for that. But at the very least, I can show them love and compassion and I can allow them a space to be heard which I think in a lot of the cases, that is what they truly need at that time. When you think about the, the challenges that you've experienced um, and what you're hearing from each other as well, what brings you strength and resilience you know, to really power through to create a fulfilling life or a, you know, a by and large fulfilling life, even with struggles that continue? But, what is it that brings you, you know, strength and groundedness and resilience um, despite the system and these impacts? Two things would probably be um, seeing people who do work like the work done by people up here. Um, I didn't have that when I was a kid. There were no as far as I knew, and I looked, okay, I was an early kid on the internet. I was like, we didn't have Google, but we had uh, we had something with a spider. I forget what it was called, but there was like a spider search engine. Don't worry about that. And I used to put that in there. I used to go to like, you know, AOL, like all these places trying to find organizations. I would look in the yearbook, not the yearbook, the, uh, the phone book trying to find organizations um, that did work for families of the incarcerated, because we needed help. My mom worked for the government, had a good government job, and we still needed help. We, she had a lot of pride around that, didn't want to ask for help. She, you know, I was born in 87, like my mom, a lot of this stuff was happening to her at the height of like the Reagan years with the idea of the welfare queen being out there and she did not want to show up to some you know, place asking for help with food or asking for help with rent because she didn't want to be called a welfare queen. She didn't want to be called another one of those black women having babies to siphon off the government or whatever. And so there was just a lot that we didn't have. 
and wouldn't have had if my mom did not have four sisters who live in the same neighborhood. That was what saved us, <laughs> um, and a grandmother. But I see so many organizations now, I see the conversations happening, all of it, and it's, I, I can't help but be super excited for a kid who finds themselves as adrift as I was at certain points in my life, who actually has somewhere to go, who actually has somebody to talk to, or who actually has some sense that there are people in their community who care about them and who care about their loved one, even though their loved one is incarcerated. And the other thing I think that really helps me or that like keeps me going is the fact that um, I get messages and emails constantly, constantly from adults who felt like this was something they couldn't talk about, who now feel like it's something that they can fight for. And that there's a version of them in the past who needed someone to fight for them who didn't, and now they can be that person for their younger self, but also for young people in the world, for their community members, people actively looking for ways to be more helpful and to be more thoughtful and more compassionate. And even though a lot of times the world for me feels like it's going in the wrong direction, um, I see these points of progress and I don't deny them to make the story more black and white and easier for me to digest. I let it be as complex as it actually is. And the complex truth includes all those people who are joining into this fight and doing the work to tell the stories of the incarcerated, to push the idea of abolitionism, to um, make sure that all humans are treated humanely, um, regardless of what some other human may believe is true. Um, I think for me, you know, just going back to one of my previous comments about not knowing um, the right folks at the right time, having to really search for and look for people who did still care about me, um, it has been really impactful on my life today. And the people who were there to support me when I was most vulnerable was not my family members. It was friends, it was new acquaintances, it was people who worked at certain organizations that for whatever reason did care about me and did meet me where I was at and loved me at a time where I wasn't very much loving myself. And I, you know, had been so broken down in the system and with a family who had abandoned me, it, it makes me just want to be that person for someone who is going through um, something of that nature. And what that is what drives me today is to know that I want to be that person for someone else because I know what it felt to go through that. And you know, hearing about your experience with your father makes me have some hope that one day my son will again talk to me. Um, that is not a topic I, I tend to bring up most generally, especially on a panel, but I think that it is 
um, completely meaningful in this conversation for folks to know that sometimes your family doesn't come around to you. Sometimes they need their own space and time to figure it out. And I have to move on with faith that someday it might. And to know that my experience can just uh, help someone else in their time of need is, is really where I get any resilience from today. And that's what I keep building upon and knowing that even with these barriers that are going to be in place for the rest of my life, there are still many opportunities I have in this world. There are places where I belong and just that sense of belonging and love is what has gotten me this far. Um, I am a, a former resident of Courage to Change Sober Living, which is a small nonprofit organization here in Bloomington. And we house up to 25 previously incarcerated folks who are seeking housing and most generally do have substance use in their history. And I now work for that organization as the house manager. And that is definitely where my heart is. Um, and I start school on Monday. It's been over a decade, I'm excited. Thank you for the audience. Prompts, that was perfectly done. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yes, let's, let's open up to the Lord. Mary, Beth, Max. Um, for me, um, having a loved one incarcerated made me um, feel ashamed. Um, like I said, I would go to the jail. That's when you could go back to visit in the jail. Um, oh, sorry. I would see... Um, I work for a low-income uh, preschool, and so I would see a lot of my parents there, and then I would have to explain why why am I there? Oh, look, there's Miss Beth. She's in the jail. Um, explain why I had a family member there, and um, then the treatment that you get from the people um, in the jail, the people in um, the judges, all of those places just makes you... Um, hardened and distrustful, distrustful of everyone. And as much as you love your incarcerated person, it makes you distrustful of them. All of the things, the stories that they call and tell you, these horrific things, do I really believe these things are happening or are they just trying to really get more money from me for who knows what? Are they buying drugs in prison? Are they really getting, you know, their stuff really getting ganked from all these other people? You know, so it just, it just really makes it hard to figure out and and live life normally. What helped me was Mary's organization, um, getting to read to me books, sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, just going to this group, knowing that there's other people um, from all walks of life. We have um, nurse practitioners, we have librarians, we have just regular people, and we all come together and support each other. Thank you. And so that's what's um, help me make it and kind of be more normal and trust people again and have some some joy in my life. I'm sorry. I'm a big crier. So. <laughs> um, yeah, it it just shows you that so little effort to make such a difference truly 
because they picked up the ball. They, these caregivers, they do this for one another. It, we cry a lot. It's just, you cry a lot. <laughs> it, it's, 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 I don't know how they, they move forward and how they can keep so positive for the children and, and all they do without being terribly bitter about a, a, a system, a so-called justice system that is not serving them fairly, that only looks at punishment when it should be about restorative justice. How can we not, and now is looking not just at how we can punish this person, but how we can keep from this happening in the next generation. What can we do? Why aren't the judges checking on what's happening with your children when you're in jail? Do they ask you that question? No. Do they say, who's looking out for your children? And you know, unless DCS has, is forced to step in, and sometimes that's OK, and sometimes it's not. So um, you know, there's a huge amount of work to be done there, all levels. Beth could go on and on. I know there's just so many issues with the justice, so-called justice system, and how it's dispensed and how it's forced money out of these people that don't have it, and how they're not then left with children to support. And out of the communities. That's just. Um, yes, <laughs> speechless. Staying resilient is hard um, because it's overwhelming. It's all overwhelming. I mean, if you, from any angle, um, we live in a divisive world to begin with, on purpose, I feel like, because I'm sort of a conspiracy theorist. But, um, <laughs> It's obvious what our government has done, uh, just in if statistically, um, you know, there's been a lot of books written about, you know, the reasons for uh, the, the state that we're in now. Um, mostly, they all point to um, keeping us divided so that we cannot cooperate, you know, they make us hate each other for race or for politics or for um, any number of things that are all sort of connected back to the solutions to the problems that we're talking about today. So I say resilient and like I got some traction today. Uh, I didn't expect that because I, I want the system to collapse. I want our communities to be empowered to hold accountable the people who are doing these things. and. Um, uh, the, the effects are so far reaching that it, it is very hard to, it's hard to function. And, you know, I, I had not had some training in how to manage my own um, uh, tendency to be depressed. Um, I'm not that now. I, I have joy and uh, sometimes it takes me a few minutes in the morning to get to that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it's overwhelming. And, and I, but yeah, I've, I have. Uh, I, I do think that something has to happen um, because we can't, can, we can't support, we can't keep, there's no way to support this trend um, moving forward. And uh, I think people are gonna get pissed off and things are gonna change.
This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.